Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our investigation. December took a little bit of a turn for us, as sleuthing sometimes will do. This week, we are going to take a journey into Chatsworth, the stately and ancestral home of the Cavendish family in Derbyshire, the home of the Dukes of Devonshire through time and what a history it has. The Cavendish family motto from Latin Cavendo Tutus, translating to safety through caution. You may see some of that as we go along, sometimes with their dukes, sometimes with their duchesses. We're not just going to talk about the home, though. Saved by Deborah Mitford, the last of our infamous and famous Mitford sisters, we are going to spend a little time with each of Chatsworth's legendary duchesses through time and all of their spider webs. I wanted to be sure to get these British aristocratic beauties into the mix before we talk about some of their American counterparts next week. Before we begin today's 500-year ride through high society history, I do have a spyglass here to give some huge and tremendous thanks to a few folks. Big love, big shout-outs for your kind reviews. Thank you, Angela S. and ARN. So very much appreciated. Thanks for showing your love to Done and Done. Also in my spyglass, I have some huge thanks to give to our most recent Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Thank you, thank you, Nikki C. and Magella O. Wow, you're the best. Melissa N. and Kim R. I can't tell you how grateful I am for you. Holy cats, thank you for joining us. I appreciate every single wonderful soul over in that done and done Patreon community. If you are looking for a gift for yourself this holiday season, consider joining us. $2 a month will get you every episode from this main feed early and ad-free. $5 a month will add on to that weekly Not Done Yet bonus episodes. All the the behind-the-scenes stuff and extra threads about what's happening here on the main feed. These last weeks, our bonus episodes included... One about the music I'm listening to as I write this month's episodes. The answer to that is Taylor Swift Evermore. We dropped a bonus on Unity Mitford as well, and potentially her affair with Hitler, as well as a whole deep dive into the bright young things, the bright young people. More to come in this holiday month of wonderful. December is the month where your stocking is stuffed with content because it's just all so good. Measure twice, cut once is my feeling, and if I'm going to weave it together, let's go where the investigation takes us. Hence today, in so much of Done and Done, we have talked about the same families in play over multiple generations, right? Power, privilege, justice, or maybe not. This episode truly is a ride through five or so centuries of the Cavendish family. It's good to introduce them through their ducal estate of Chatsworth, and talk about them through time. Let's take a dip into Chatsworth, the home, the estate, and all of its duchesses, some realized and some not manifested. I want you to think about Cavendish, the family name, when you think about Chatsworth. I feel it's key to know Chatsworth's place in the lexicon, as well as that Cavendish family name. So much history happens there, and with this family and associated players, 
from Tudor times up to today. Let's investigate. Oh, Chatsworth, the home of the Cavendish family for many, many years. Chatsworth has a rich history of scandal and secrets and power. Currently, it is still the home of Peregrine Cavendish, son of Deborah Midford, and his wife, Amanda Cavendish. They are the current Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. Peregrine, if we're keeping track, is our 12th Duke of Devonshire. Chatsworth is located in Derbyshire, Many hours from London, this is northeast of Birmingham, southwest of Manchester, parallel to Dublin, if you're into longitude. Chatsworth, as a home, is a popular tourist attraction, welcoming 750,000 people a year. The entire state, with all of its land, is the size of Washington, D.C. Chatsworth House has a half mile of passageways, 300 rooms, 17 staircases, and 350 doors. As with most ancestral country homes in England, there is a great estate and agricultural area included with the house. Chatsworth has nearly 35,000 acres, including multiple farms, houses, parks, forests, and woodlands. Big house, big deal. And you don't even have to have visited Chatsworth in person. Potentially, you've seen it on the screen. The home has been featured in many movies and television programs, including Pride and Prejudice, The Duchess, Jane Eyre, Peaky Blinders, Death Comes to Pemberley, The Wolfman, Lady Jane, A Royal Night Out, Midsummer Murders, The Crown, Antiques Roadshow, and many others. Big house, big deal, big family. Oh, the Cavendish family, they're big players. They have been moving around in aristocratic circles since the 1500s. Chatsworth has been a family home of the Cavendish family since 1549. Although there's not a title attached in 1549, not yet. The earldom for the family is granted in 1618. It is upgraded to their ducal title in 1694. We actually land our first Duchess of Devonshire In 1729, a lot of time to cover not just the home, but the women who make the home too. The first thing I want you to know is that there is no Chatsworth without Bess of Hardwick. The home is originally built by Sir William Cavendish for his wife, Bess of Hardwick. William Cavendish is Bess's second husband, and Bess has quite a history. I love her. If there was ever time to uh, pull a few threads together with, whew, some Tudor gossip here. Let's talk about Bess of Hardwick for a few moments. You don't mess around with Bess. She is not a Duchess of Devonshire per se, but it is Bess and William Cavendish's son, William, that will bring the Cavendish family into its earldom in 1618. The Blount family originally held that earldom. Since 1618, the earldom has remained in the Cavendish family, which is not insignificant. As with plenty of monarchies in and out of time, it's not unusual to see titles and land that are attached to those titles shift through time. Back to Bess. Who really is the reason for the home? 
Best goes through a few marriages and definitely plays in the power structure of ye old Tudor England. Chatsworth will not be Bess of Hardwick's only home. She is also the builder of the very famous Hardwick Hall as well. Let's give a little love to Bess. Born in 1527-ish, it wasn't too important to write down birth dates for girls unless you were royal, and then that's only after a certain time period. Sweet Bess is born into a respectable but poor family. Good name, lack of cash. Her father dies when she's young, and whatever assets the family does have are seized by the king, thanks Henry VIII, and being held by the crown for her oldest brother to come of age. Bess's mom remarries, which you'd think would be a good thing, but Bess's stepdad is hung up and executed by Henry VIII as well. At the age of 12, Bess is sent to a local wealthy family. To live, to board, to learn, it's not uncommon to kind of shift your kids around the countryside. Bess will make her first marriage here. They're both teenagers, neighboring estates and all. But Bess's young husband, she's 12, he's 13, dies within a year. They marry in May of 1543, and her poor first husband is dead by Christmas 1544. So Bess, at the age of 14, is now a widow, but she does get a small inheritance. Bess will become a lady-in-waiting, we think, to Frances Gray. This is the daughter of Mary Tudor and mother of Lady Jane Gray, our future Nine Days Queen. But Bess, still young? Her second husband will not be as young. This marriage happens in August of 1547, this time to Sir William Cavendish connecting us into the Devonshire Chatsworth scheme here. William Cavendish is 20 or 30 years older than Bess. He's twice widowed himself, and he's made a ton of cash from the dissolution of the monasteries. He operated as the treasurer of the king's chamber. Bess's husband, William, moves his way through the Henry VIII administration. All of them kind of shady. But he's got a lot of cash, and they're going to buy a little place called Chatsworth. Bess is now Lady Cavendish. Huzzah! Bess and William, during their marriage, will have eight children, although in his lifetime, William Cavendish has 16 total children. Of the eight kids that Bess and William have, two will die in infancy. William Cavendish himself dies in 1557 with a lot of debt. Bess and William have been married about 10 years. Bess is now 30. She's charming. She's connected, but again, saddled with a ton of debt. But she still holds Chatsworth. It's because of Bess, and through Bess, there is a Chatsworth. Two years later, in 1559, Bess will marry again, this time to Sir William St. Lowe. He is the captain of the guards to Elizabeth I, and they will begin taking the home that was begun by William Cavendish, and they complete the home together. The real benefit of her third husband, Sir William St. Lou, he is able to provide Bess with working within the system to alleviate some of the debts from the Cavendish marriage. St. Lou is loaded as well, and the two will really in earnest begin customizing, fashioning Chatsworth. Five years later, however, Sir William St. Lowe will die in suspicious circumstances, potentially poisoned by his younger brother. 
He passes away in 1564 with no male issue. He has two daughters from a previous marriage, and Bess is now really, really wealthy, taking in about 19,000 pounds a year, which is, whoa, 19 million in today's money. She's taking care of her six kids and the other two by marriage, and also she's a lady of the bedchamber to Elizabeth I, so here's Bess at court in her mid-30s. She's still pretty good looking, one of the wealthiest people now in England, second only to the queen. Bess is playing in a whole new world of money and power. She has a lot of men interested in her. Good looks and money will get you pretty far in life. It'll get you real far in the Tudor court. But Bess is okay. She thinks she's doing fine. She's not really on the lookout for a man, but she will marry for the fourth and final time to George Talbot. This is the sixth Earl of Shrewsbury. The marriage takes place in 1568, and Bess is way past her childbearing years, but they have a lot of kids between them. George Talbot has seven. So with her six, plus her two by marriage, plus his seven, I want you to know that Bess has a really important skill, which is matchmaking. Matchmaker, matchmaker. She will matchmake all the kids of all these kids together. She's practical. She's clever. Tudor women don't necessarily have too much power, but if there is an example of one who does have power, it is Bess. She will control, manifest, and matchmake very powerful marriages. That is her superpower. She's an influencer, queen of hearts, lands, power, something. I don't know. Her matchmaking leads us to the Cavendish line even currently being on the throne of England today. It's all there. Incredible Bess. Bess and this fourth husband, George Talbot, will finish Chatsworth. And during their time together there, a few things happen. Bess and George are asked by Queen Elizabeth I to, you know, just helpfully keep her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, locked prisoner in their home for about 15 years. The rooms where Mary Queen of Scots did stay on the top floor above the Great Hall are now known as the Queen of Scots rooms. George and Bess will play babysitter to the exiled Scottish queen again for like a decade and a half, and Elizabeth I doesn't really pay for any of those expenses for babysitting, kidnapping her cousin. All of the expenses for Mary Queen of Scots is on the Talbot dime, and Mary, Queen of Scots, kind of is a jerk here a little bit, or maybe a woman trying to make the best of her plight. Mary will play Bess and George off each other. There are rumors that even go around that Mary, Queen of Scots, and George Talbot are having an affair. Bess is the one to start these rumors, but by the early 1580s, George and Bess are separated. The marriage isn't going great. Even Elizabeth I attempts to do marriage counseling with them. It does not work. But the two will not divorce. Not done. At that time, they just decide to live separately. George Talbot will pass away in 1590, leaving Bess the Dowager Countess of Shrewsbury. Having already started building the home that she's even more famous for than Chatsworth, this is her home, Hardwick Hall, which is said about it, it has more glass than walls. It's a pretty interesting show-off kind of home that Bess is building. She's wealthy. She's powerful. 
She's the richest woman in England next to Elizabeth I, and Bess, after her four marriages, with all the money in the world, has no need to marry again. Now Bess will supervise and manage her lands and the relationships that she has in her own special way. Bess of Hardwick dies at the age of 81 in February 1608 in a life filled with like a rags to riches story. Bess, I love her. She's not a Duchess of Devonshire, but if there's ever an honorary one, it should be Bess of Hardwick. Remember, it is Bess and William's son, their second son, William, who becomes the first Earl Devonshire in 1618. The earldom of the Devonshires begins here. What allows this to happen? All the money Bess has. It is the inheritance that she leaves those kids that allows son William to purchase the earldom from the new king, James I of England, James VI of Scotland, everyone's favorite witch hunter. This is only the beginning of the absolutely meteoric rise of the Cavendish family. This William will be our first Earl of Devonshire. William marries. He and his wife have kids. They have an oldest son named William. That's our second Earl Devonshire. William marries, has kids. He has an oldest son, you guessed it, named William. He's our third Earl of Devonshire. Who marries Elizabeth, the daughter of William Cecil, and they have kids, you guessed it. William Cavendish is the oldest one of those kids, and this William Cavendish will become our first Duke. See, the earldom is upgraded by William III in 1694 to a dukedom. It is this first Duke of Devonshire who begins building the initial portion of the current Chatsworth House in about 1687. The very recognizable north front of the home was finished in 1707. William, our first Duke, does marry. William is going to marry Lady Mary Butler. She is the daughter of the first Duke of Ormond. This Duke of Ormond title is actually associated into the Boleyn family. And Boleyn would have ended up as a Duchess of Ormond had her father and Thomas Wolsey had their way. Henry VIII stopped that particular move. So it is Lady Mary Butler who is our first Duchess of Devonshire, technically. Mary and William do get married. They have kids. Naturally, they're going to have a son. Three guesses. First two don't count. Huh, William. He's our second Duke. William, our second Duke, marries Rachel Russell. Rachel Russell becomes a lady of the bedchamber for Queen Anne. You're going to find many of our Duchesses of Devonshire's holding esteemed and powerful positions with many royal duties. Mary and William do have 10 children, including, guess what, first son, William. He's our up-and-coming third duke. This William, our third duke, marries a girl named Catherine Hoskins. Who could guess what's about to happen? They have a William, huh? <laughs> In 1720, he's our eventual fourth Duke of Devonshire. Got a little bit of a dish here, though. Catherine Hoskins will be the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire from 1755 on when the third Duke dies. When that happens, right, the dukedom is passed to William, the fourth Duke, their son, 
who will marry Lady Elizabeth Charlotte Boyle. This is the sixth Baroness Clifford, a title in her own right through the Boyle line. William and Lady Boyle marry in 1748. This marriage will produce four children and prove very advantageous for the Cavendish family. They have kids, they have the home, all things are good, and after six years of doing the Duke and Duchess thing in 1754, Lady Elizabeth Charlotte's father passes away, leaving her as his heir. Whoa, the Cavendish family is going to add a lot of homes at this point to their portfolio through this marriage and her inheritance. This is also when Capability Brown comes, takes a little visit, and is going to do the gardens and park up real nice at Chatsworth. There are extensive gardens at Chatsworth with over 1,600 different species of trees, 70 sculptures, a 900-foot-long pond designed to make the house look like it's floating on water, and the Emperor Fountain, Really cool, run by gravity, reaching a maximum height of almost 300 feet, coming in right at 296 feet. Some of these park garden things do come from Capability Brown. Some come later throughout the generations, but if you have enough cash, your yard can look pretty nice. What happens here, though? In 1754, the same year, that Lady Elizabeth Charlotte inherits all of her dad's stuff, she passes away. When this happens, all of her holdings, wealth, get passed to her husband, redoubling the wealth of the Cavendish family. The fourth duke will not remarry when Lady Elizabeth Charlotte passes away at the end of 1754, which is fine by his mother. Remember Lady Catherine, the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire, She didn't approve of the marriage in the first place, and Lady Catherine will remain in place as the mistress of Chatsworth for a while, until her grandson, the fifth duke, marries in 1774. By this point, you know, the fifth duke's name is William Cavendish. It can't be anything else, and he takes a wife that you are maybe a little bit more familiar with, Lady Georgina Spencer from those Spencers. She's part of the Spencer family who have been playing in the same scene as the Cavendishes since the 1500s too. The Spencer family home is Althorpe. Georgina really is a diamond. She's beautiful, connected within the Spencer family by the age of 14 because Georgina is so charming and so lovely. Everybody is talking about who will she marry. What kind of match will Georgina make? And Georgina's mother is like, hey, my kid's 14. I'm not giving her up until she's 18. She's certainly not ready for marriage. In the year 1772, Georgina and the rest of her Spencer family is on a grand tour. Mom and dad, they have all three kids. And Georgina gets a wonderful reception on this trip. She's praised for her beauty and her virtues. She'll take a little trip to Versailles and become besties with Marie Antoinette. It is also at Versailles where she meets the fifth Duke of Devonshire, William Cavendish. He was born in 1748, and when Georgina meets him, he is one of the wealthiest and most prominent men in England. 
William V Duke came into his fortune when he was 16. His income is double that of Georgiana's father, Lord Spencer. Not only with money, but property too. With all of the inheritance from the wife of the third duke, it's not just Chatsworth and Derbyshire. It's Devonshire House in London too. Two really good examples of their real estate portfolio. William, the fifth duke, is considered England's most eligible bachelor and the anointed prince of the Whig party, but nobody really gets why. I mean, we get why. It's the cash. But no one really understands the personal appeal because William doesn't really have that much personal appeal. When Georgiana is 16 and the Duke is 25, which is a relatively small age gap for aristocratic marriages of the time, the Duke inquires about marrying Georgiana. Obviously, there are no better marriage prospects for Georgiana. But Georgiana's mother's torn because she does know her daughter is just too young. But she also knows that there's no way she can deny Georgiana the opportunity to marry the most eligible bachelor in England. She was never going to be able to get such a high-status marriage if she turns him down. In the 18th century, marriage is just about the only means to success and security for women. And alas, you know what's going to happen. Georgiana's parents happily accept the Duke's offer of marriage for their daughter. Georgiana's parents are really deferential to him, but they're deferential to his money. They're excited about William Cavendish being interested in their daughter. And again, as marriages go, this would be a coup, at least in terms of name and security and alliances. But at what cost to Georgiana? The wedding does happen June the 7th, 1774, two days earlier than actually planned. And on Georgiana's birthday, too, there's so much press that the family, Georgiana's family, thinks the church will be overcome with looky-loos. No one tells Georgiana. They bring the Duke down and they're all like, hey, let's just go to the local church and have a secret wedding with five people in attendance, including the Duke's brother, Lord Richard Cavendish, and his sister, Dorothy, who had married the Duke of Portland. On Georgiana's side, it's her parents and her paternal grandmother, Lady Cowper. Even Georgiana's brother and sister do not attend. They remain at Wimbledon waiting for the wedding party to get back from the local church. Few things, though, here just right before the wedding. The Duke's mistress, her name is Charlotte Spencer, no relation to those Spencers, had just delivered his illegitimate child. So, not really an auspicious start. Everybody thinks it's going to be a marriage most wonderful. The coming together of the Spencers and the Cavendish families, it's kind of a big deal. But these two are ill-matched. William is quiet. Georgina is not. Georgina's very much an extrovert. William's very much an introvert. And Georgina's mother kind of knew something. Her daughter is in no way equipped to run an estate the size of Chatsworth. Georgina's 17, and here she is, given the responsibility of running Chatsworth Estate and Devonshire House with all of its employees. She's unprepared for this role, and servants begin taking advantage of Georgina's youth and inexperience. Theft goes up within the home, and the quality of service and the quality of food noticeably go down. 
this is a big deal if you're entertaining nobility-titled people. Your home gets a reputation. Georgina's not doing a terrific job with Chatsworth, but again, whoever prepared her to do that? This isn't the only failure point, though. It really does quickly become obvious to Georgina that her marriage is not going to be the fairy tale that she was sold by her parents. It isn't hard to see for Georgina that the Duke doesn't really love her. Their personalities are mismatched. The Duke is very dull and mostly just ignores Georgina. His big project at the time is developing a new town called Buxton and Georgina's into dresses and having fun because she's a 17-year-old kid. And here she is expected to make friends with other high society wives and promote her husband socially and politically. You got a Duke constantly cheating. She's having repeat miscarriages and the Duke hasn't stopped messing around with Charlotte Spencer. And remember that illegitimate child that the Duke has? The kid comes to Chatsworth and Georgina is expected to raise her husband's illegitimate child. Things aren't looking too good for poor Georgina. By now, three months into her marriage, Georgina, overly suspecting the true nature of how the Duke feels about her, he's distant. He's naturally reticent. They have nothing in common. And for his part, her innocence bored him. And Georgina is like too acute not to notice his lack of interest in her. She'll tell her mother she was making an effort to be more attractive to him. He's so otherworldly. She begins reading Lord Chesterfield's letters to his son. She knows that her husband is interested in history and the classics. So Georgina begins several books on ancient Greece. It's not a love match, y'all. And Georgina gets eventually at some point that the Duke simply just needs her to have babies. Not just have babies, have a son. Because see, the fifth Duke has already found his next duchess, although they will not marry until after Georgina's death. It is the introduction of the mistress into the actual marriage that has some effects on our fifth Duke and Georgina. Let's take a moment to enter another best, this time Lady Elizabeth Foster. Lady Elizabeth is the daughter of the fourth Earl of Bristol, born in 1758. Elizabeth Foster has been married. She has two sons, but her husband is a rampant philanderer as well. And around the five-year mark of their marriage in about 1781, Elizabeth Foster tells her husband, I'm done. It's going to leave her penniless, but... She doesn't want to be married anymore, and her husband, John Thomas Foster, it's kind of nasty. Poor Elizabeth will not see her sons for 14 years because their father will keep the sons. Elizabeth, though, is free of her terrible marriage, and she's going to go off to Bath for a little R&R in 1782, a little time to recharge after the terrible separation, the losing of her children. Georgina is visiting Bath at the same time, and here Georgina and Bess become fast friends. And Georgina is like, oh, Bess, you're my best friend and my lover, and you can come live with us. You can't face this terrible world alone. And sure enough, Bess Foster will come to live with Georgina and the fifth Duke. The two women have developed some feelings, you see, 
And despite her unhappiness with her husband and the marriage breaking down, Georgina isn't socially permitted to take a lover until she has a son. Bess Foster can take lovers. Her husband, the Duke, can take lovers, but not Georgina. I guess male lovers is the descriptor there. Georgina will be devastated, though, when she learns that Bess Foster, who she's moved into their home to have just a little something for her. Oh, God. Bess is actually having an affair with the fifth Duke. Once this is revealed, the three, Bess, the Duke, and Georgina, become involved in a really dysfunctional and toxic menage a trois. Oddly enough, this is when Georgina finally becomes pregnant. She's got a lot of years without conceiving or successfully bearing a child. On the flip side of that, Bess Foster also becomes pregnant at the same time with the Duke's child. This love triangle with Georgina, Bess, and the Duke will continue on for years and years and years. Georgina will have children with a son finally coming in 1790. This is after 16 years of marriage. There's so much to this story, but I do want to ensure that we're getting to all the good parts. Georgina is the Duchess of Devonshire beginning in 1774 to her death in 1806, where she dies at Devonshire House at the age of 48. Georgina, our Duchess of Devonshire, is the great-great-great-great-aunt of Diana, Princess of Wales. Georgina is also an ancestor of Sarah, Duchess of York. This is through the line of Georgina's illegitimate daughter. Oh, God, so many spiderwebs. After Georgina's death, the fifth Duke, William, will marry Bess Foster in 1809. I mean, no time like the present. He's 60 years old in his sixth decade of life now, and the fifth Duke does get two years of happy ever after with Bess Foster. He dies in 1811, leaving the whole lot to who will be the sixth Duke of Devonshire, Georgina's son. You know his name is William, too. (laughs) So many Williams, so little time. This William, the sixth Duke, is known as the Bachelor Duke. He never marries. The Bachelor Duke is a great lover of gardening and botanical research. He will partner with the architect and botanist, Joseph Paxton. Joseph Paxton goes on to be the architect of the Crystal Palace for the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London. Together, the Bachelor Duke and Paxton develop a lot of new species of plants, including the Cavendish Dwarf Banana, which are now the most internationally traded bananas in the world. Joseph Paxton and our Bachelor Duke will spend over $4 million, this is in today's money, on plant seeds in just one year. A total garden budget for the year was about $7 million in today's money. In 1840, Joseph Paxton and our bachelor Duke are also responsible for building the Great Conservatory, which was the largest glass house in the world. Why do they build it? Naturally, it's to hold their exotic plants. The Great Conservatory takes 300 tons of coal each year to heat this glass house. When World War I strikes, 
There is simply just not enough coal available to heat the glass house, and it was eventually demolished. Our bachelor duke is also a tremendous friend of the Prince Regent. This is the future George IV. Remember, it's the Prince Regent's parents, George III, and his wife, Queen Charlotte, that institute the whole debutante system. Go back a few weeks for that whole story. And our poor, poor bachelor duke, he would have liked to have married. He had an idea of who exactly he wanted to marry, and that was Lady Caroline Ponsonby. But Lady Caroline breaks our bachelor duke's heart and instead marries his cousin, William Lamb. William Lamb is the second Viscount Melbourne, also the first prime minister to Queen Victoria. Lady Caroline is our Duchess of Devonshire that never was. Because 1812, y'all, let me talk to you about a little scandal. Lady Caroline was from an old and respected aristocratic family. Her cousins were the children of Lady Georgina Spencer and William Cavendish, our fifth duke. Lady Caroline is also related to Diana, Princess of Wales. But in 1812, Caroline Lamb, now married to William, has a very public affair with English poet and politician Lord Byron. Lady Caroline coins the famous characterization of Byron as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Their affair, the scandal of it, is the talk of Britain at the time. Lady Caroline was known for her outrageous and scandalous behavior even before her affair with Lord Byron. Not scandalous here, but interesting to note that Lady Caroline was the one who introduced the waltz to England, with the first waltz being performed at Brockett Hall, the country estate of the Lambs. But you're here for the outrageous and scandalous. Supposedly, Caroline once emerged from a soup tureen at her husband's birthday party and danced nude upon a ballroom table. That table is actually still in use for banquets at the home today. Lord Byron, mad, bad, and dangerous to know himself, will break things off with Lady Caroline Lamb, and her husband, William Lord Melbourne, takes his disgraced wife to Ireland. It is in Ireland that Lady Caroline still pines for Lord Byron. She will write him adoring letters from her Irish exile. When Lady Caroline returns to London in 1813, Lord Byron makes it very clear that he is not interested in continuing the relationship with Caroline. But Caroline is persistent and will make many public attempts to reunite with him. Obviously, this causes a great deal of embarrassment to her husband, who, again, up-and-coming politician. Eventually, Lord Byron publicly insults Lady Caroline. This is done at a very large ball held at Lady Heathcote's home. Caroline doesn't handle this very well and responds by breaking a wine glass at the party and using that broken glass to cut her wrists. Lady Caroline is not seriously injured and most likely had no serious suicidal intent but she again causes a major scandal with her actions. Lord Byron will reference Macbeth saying, Lady Caroline performed the dagger scene as his comment on the situation. Clearly at this point, her mental stability is called into question after this ball. To make matters worse, in 1816, Lady Caroline 
will publish a gothic novel called Glenarvan that portrays her marriage to William Lamb and her affair with Lord Byron, both things explained in lurid detail. This continued the embarrassment for Lord Melbourne and created many enemies for him and Caroline due to her spiteful depictions of many influential society figures that she writes in her goth novel. Despite all of this, though, Lord Melbourne, William Lamb, does not leave his wife Carolyn, even when his family made several attempts to convince him to divorce her. Each member of this couple is far from faithful to each other. They both engage in several extramarital affairs. Ultimately, it is Lady Caroline who convinces her husband to agree to a formal separation in 1825. Lady Caroline's struggle with mental instability grows worse in her last years, further complicated by her abuse of alcohol and laudanum. Lady Caroline will pass away in 1828. But it is her would-be suitor, the Bachelor Duke, that we're talking about. Just had to add that in. It's Our sixth Duke, the Bachelor Duke, will pass away in 1858. Never marries. Holy cats, what to do? This will be the first time the line changes. It is still going to go to William Cavendish, but this William Cavendish, because primogeniture, we have to find the oldest existing son of someone, and the sixth duke has no issue, so it is to the son of the third son of the fourth duke of Devonshire, and Lady Elizabeth Charlotte. It all comes back around on the guitar. This William Cavendish, our seventh duke, will marry. He marries Blanche Georgina Howard. Her father is the sixth Earl Carlisle. Blanche Georgina's mother is the sister of the sixth duke of Devonshire. We're just keeping it all in the family. So the bachelor duke, before he passes away, is all for this marriage. He knows where his land and money and title are going to go. So the Bachelor Duke is going to spend a little time arranging this marriage between his heir, William Cavendish, and his niece. William and Blanche do marry in 1829. They will have five children. Blanche is a lady of the bedchamber to Queen Victoria, but Blanche is not a Duchess of Devonshire. Sadly, Blanche dies in 1840 at the age of 28 with the title of Countess of Burlington. That is what her husband was at the time. He had not received his dukedom yet. He won't get that until 1858 when the bachelor duke dies. And here, William, our seventh duke of Devonshire, attains his dukedom. He lives until 1891. From this marriage with Blanche and William, our 8th Duke of Devonshire is produced. And here's where I need you to sit down. Hold on to your hats, friends. Spencer Cavendish is his name. It's our first not William. Who would have ever thought it could happen? Our 8th Duke will marry, but not until very, very late in life. Most of Spencer Cavendish's life early is the ponies. And he has a long-term mistress. Her name is Catherine Walters. I love history. It's so delightful. Catherine Walter's nickname is Skittles. <laughs> she is a courtesan and very much a trendsetter in Victorian London. Apparently, the Skittles nickname 
comes back from when Catherine Walters worked at a bowling alley. Skittles is the game that evolves into bowling. Again, historical legend. Catherine Walters, her only lover is not Spencer Cavendish, the eighth Duke. You can include Napoleon III, as well as the Prince of Wales. This is our future Edward VII among her lovers, too. Our eighth Duke will eventually marry, but not to Skittles, and not in time to produce an heir. His bride will not be of childbearing age by the time he gets around to getting married. I would like to enter into our picture now, Louisa Cavendish. Lady Louisa is known as the Double Duchess. She was married to not one, but two different dukes. Louisa was a German-born British aristocrat with a real acumen for social climbing. Louisa is the mistress of the robes to Queen Victoria for a hot minute in 1858. Power structures changed a little bit after that, but no worries in her time with Queen Victoria. Louisa becomes very close friends with the Prince of Wales, again, future Eddie VII, and his wife, Alexandra, the future queen. Very, very smart for Louisa. These connections will come in handy. Our double duchess will marry for the first time in 1852 to Viscount Mandeville, heir to the sixth Duke of Manchester. Louisa's husband does get his dukedom of Manchester, becoming the seventh Duke Manchester in 1855. Five kids do happen from this marriage, but the couple, Louisa and the seventh Duke of Manchester, not happy. It's not a blessed marriage, but no worries. Louisa here takes up with Spencer Cavendish, and they carry on a decades-long love affair. For 30 years, Spencer and Louisa carry on. And it is in 1890 that Louisa's first Duke, her first husband, does pass away, leaving Louisa free to marry in 1892 at the age of 60 to the Duke she'd been carrying on with for three decades. Again, a little too late for childbearing, but hey, true love wins. It had been many years since Chatsworth had had a duchess, and Louisa brought life back into the home. This is also the age of the infamous country house party. Country house parties, a big deal. It is a vehicle where it becomes acceptable for lovers to rendezvous with each other as long as it's discreet. Again, a lot of doors, a lot of rooms. Our double duchess, Louisa Cavendish, is a very popular hostess for many of these weekend country house parties. One of the most infamous was the Devonshire House Fancy Dress Ball, held in July of 1897. This is a celebration for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria. Again, remember, Louisa made friends with the Prince of Wales and Alexandra all those years ago. Edward VII will be a common visitor during his time. Louisa entertains the best of them. Eddie VII, just so you know, notorious womanizer. He loves the country house parties. He also enjoys attending the Chatsworth Theater and especially enjoys the shooting at Chatsworth. It is during one weekend that King Edward and Louisa's Duke shot over 1,000 pheasants. Our double duchess, Louisa, 
does have a daughter-in-law through her first marriage. This daughter-in-law is Consuelo Isnaga, one of the first American dollar heiresses. Consuelo Inaga marries Louisa's son, the Duke of Manchester. Consuelo Isnaga and King Edward VII get along famously. Again, he really, really likes American girls. It is King Edward VII and Consuelo Isnaga that arrange and broker many of the marriages between wealthy American heiresses and cash-poor British aristocrats. Let's go ahead and back it up here just a little bit. When Spencer, our eighth duke, dies, remember, no issue of his own, it is to his nephew that the whole shebang goes to. This is Victor Cavendish, who will become our ninth duke. I know, I bet you thought I was going to say William. Nope, Victor. Naturally, Victor marries. He has taken a bride all the way back in 1892, Lady Evelyn Petty Fitzmorris, daughter of the Marquess of Lansdowne and Viceroy of India. Lady Evelyn, the Duchess of Devonshire here, will have seven kids. She reigns over Chatsworth as well as three other English castles and one Irish estate. Lady Evelyn is mistress of the robes to Queen Mary from 1910 to 1916. But again, her husband, Victor Cavendish, has big important jobs like the Governor General of Canada. Once they return from Canada... Lady Evelyn does resume her post in 1921 as Mistress of the Robes and holds that post until the death of Queen Mary. Evelyn will have a lot of years of unhappiness and many years as a widow. Victor, her husband, the Ninth Duke, has a stroke in 1925 that changes his personality in an extreme and not good way. Victor will not pass away until 1938. And after his death, Lady Evelyn is going to spend her dowager time out at Hardwick Hall. It all comes back around to Bess of Hardwick. During the happy years of the marriage with Victor and Evelyn, there's seven kids. One of these, Edward William Spencer Cavendish, will become our 10th Duke. Put him on hold for a moment. I want to focus in on our second son of the ninth duke for just a moment, Charles, Charlie, and his famous wife. It is in the year 1923 that famous dancing siblings Fred and Adele Astaire make a splash in London and quickly become famous. Charlie Cavendish, our second son of the ninth duke of Devonshire, falls in love with Adele Astaire and the two are married at Chatsworth in 1932. Adela Stare is a big star, and this was the first marriage of its kind. Prior to this, it is unseemly for a British peer to marry an actress. Adele and Charlie will stay married until Charlie's early death in 1944 at the age of 38 from alcoholism. Adela Stare will then return to the United States. Charlie does have siblings, including our 10th Duke. Long before he is the 10th Duke, though, Edward William Spencer Cavendish will marry Lady Mary Gascoigne Cecil. This happens in 1917, and Lady Mary is the granddaughter of the Prime Minister. Lady Mary will also serve as Mistress of the Robes, this time to Queen Elizabeth, from 1953 to 1967. 
Lady Mary and our 10th Duke do have five kids. These kids will absolutely be players in our associated timeline, and I want to bring three of these kids into focus in our story here. Their first son, naturally named William, will not be a Duke of Devonshire. Billy Cavendish, what a story. You may not know his name, but you're probably familiar with his wife, Kick Kennedy. Kathleen Kit Kennedy lives at Chatsworth while she's married to Billy Cavendish, Marquess of Hardington, and heir to the Dukedom of Devonshire. Billy Cavendish will die in World War II, which leaves his younger brother, Andrew Cavendish, as the heir and next Duke of Devonshire. Kit Kennedy is buried at Chatsworth after her death in 1948, And in 1963, just months before his own death, her brother, John F. Kennedy, does make an unplanned stop on the way to Ireland to spend some time at his sister's grave. Hold on to Kit Kennedy. Her story is coming oh so soon. So it is Andrew here, the second son, who will become our 11th Duke of Devonshire. Andrew will marry Deborah Mitford in 1941, They have children themselves, including Peregrine, our current 12th Duke, married to Lady Amanda. I do have one more sibling, though, to mention here of Billy and Andrew, and this is Lady Elizabeth Georgina Alice Cavendish. Holy cats. Her story's incredible. She's a childhood friend of Queen Elizabeth II, and Lady Elizabeth is also a lady-in-waiting to Princess Margaret, from the 1940s up to Princess Margaret's death. Lady Elizabeth will never marry, but she will carry on a very long-term affair with one of the most famous writers of The Bright Young People, The Bright Young Things. His name is John Bitumen. Lady Elizabeth Cavendish will be known as John Bitumen's other wife. Lady Elizabeth is also the one that introduces Princess Margaret to Anthony Armstrong Jones, according to the rumor mill at least. Lady Elizabeth is also one of the godmothers to David Armstrong Jones, the son of Princess Margaret and Anthony Armstrong Jones. Fascinating. There's so much about Princess Margaret that is going to cross our man Nick's world. Again, story coming another day. Andrew Cavendish here, our 11th Duke, will gain the title upon the death of his father in 1950. And when Deborah and Andrew Cavendish inherit Chatsworth, the English government had instituted an 80% inheritance tax. This leaves Deborah and Andrew with $60 million of debt in today's money. This large inheritance tax results in many large country homes being demolished because families all across the countryside could not afford to keep them. Deborah Mitford is determined not to allow Chatsworth to be a casualty of the same thing happening to so many in the peerage. She refuses to lose all of the history included within the walls of that home. The first step that Deborah takes in raising money was to auction several paintings, lots of artwork, lots of jewelry, lots of other possessions. Deborah, this Duchess of Devonshire, was very enterprising, very industrious, and integral in opening Chatsworth to the public. 
Deborah also opens and operates other businesses and retail components of Chatsworth in order to pay death taxes when her father-in-law dies and manages to make enough money to keep Chatsworth running and maintained. It takes until 1980, but by 1980, all of that debt was paid off and Chatsworth was fully restored. Deborah Mitford and her extraordinary work in this time really does set the model for many surviving English estates. Again, the current Duke of Devonshire, our 12th Duke, is the son of Deborah Mitford and Andrew Cavendish. Peregrine Cavendish is happy to be able to live at Chatsworth and loves that the public appreciates and visits the estate. The current Duke and Duchess are happy to have the house and gardens open and fully understand that without public tours and the commercial ventures that his mother put into place that Chatsworth would have been lost long ago. Thankfully, it is not, though. They host many a folk through its acres, its home, its gardens, its parks. Chatsworth, five generations of history of legacy and connections. Investigators, thank you so, so much for joining me today on this little ride through many centuries of history. We will be back next week picking up a number of the threads that we stitched into our tapestry today. I hope you can join us then for American Girls, our December series, coming all to you next Saturday. Who are the ladies from the American side of the pond that change British aristocracy? All that and more next week. In the meantime, a few fun bonuses are coming this week on Not Done Yet to Patreon to tide you over until our next episodes. To find out more about that, you can go to patreon.com slash done and done. As always, many, many thanks for your ears and for listening and for your kind reviews and your emails and your support on Patreon and telling your friends about Done and Done. I can't tell you how grateful I am for you. Until we meet again, my friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.